In Viking times, a thing was a gathering, a place where leaders and warriors could meet and talk. In the 21st century, our thing is a virtual place where history academics and enthusiasts from around the world can come together to share knowledge. We're your hosts, Miranda Schmiederer and Lucas Norton. So hold on to your helmets for this episode of that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. For our longtime listeners, they may recognize the topic of this particular episode because this was episode one. We we talked about Viking storytelling like two years ago now. Very long time ago, yes. But fortunately, it was you and me. It's just like our most of our episodes these days. It was just you and me chatting about Viking storytelling, about myths and sagas and things like that. Um, but I figure this is a good opportunity for us to just take a moment, step back, and kind of redo the whole thing because we've learned a lot since then. Uh, we've come a long way in two years. I mean, we've got a better microphone now. We're not doing this uh, this interview over Zoom. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I know more about Vikings now than I did then. I should hope so. It's been two, two and a half years now. <laughs> So I think to kind of help our listeners out, um, both old and new, we should talk about Viking storytelling. So we'll start with the basics then. Um, we talk a lot um, in our episodes about myths and sagas. I mean, what is that? What are what are myths? What are sagas? What's the difference? Great. So we've got like as a general rule of thumb, you could say mythology is generally more focused upon gods and goddesses. So you've got your Thor, Odin, Loki, Freya, yeah. along with other related supernatural things. So dwarves, elves, giants, things like that. Mm-hmm. The sagas, on the other hand, um, in that category, they're much more focused upon people, human beings, their life stories. And the mythology comes mainly from two sources, which are the Eddas. So we use those quite a lot of sources for our mythology storytelling episodes, of course. Definitely. Um, we have two Eddas. They were written in the 13th century in Iceland. And the first of these is the Poetic Edda. Now, this one has lots of mythological trivia mixed in, into it. Um, when you read through it, you'll notice it's a selection of poems, and they come across as a bit random, to be honest. Right. Um, these poems, some of them relate to each other, but most of them do not. And their style and their theme varies quite a lot between each one as well. Uh, there are some quite famous ones. You've probably heard of Havamal. Yes. The advice of the god Odin. So that's a bit like his Twitter feed. He's <laughs> just sort of giving you random bits. A stream of, of consciousness. Exactly, yeah. yes. With a sort of 160 character limit, whatever it would have been. <laughs> nice short stanzas. Um, then there's ones like Thrymsquither. Now that one's much more like a cohesive narrative. That's the one where Thor's got to get his hammer back, right. dressed as a lady. Sure, yeah. That one is definitely a comedy, and many of the others are not comedies. They're a bit more disturbing or dark, <laughs> or just downright confusing. It's also just a small selection of the poems that would have once existed about the Viking gods and goddesses. We've lost many, many more. The Poetic Edda is basically like the greatest hits of the Vikings. <laughs> it's like a compilation album, you might think. Right. Um, it's a really, really good source for the basic fundamentals of the mythology. We have stuff about creation, Ragnarok, 
and the personalities of people like Thor and Odin and the Loki, the, ma- the major gods of the mythology. Right. The other source is the prose editor, written by our friend Snorri Sturluson. I feel like he comes up a lot. Yes, Snorri is fundamental to our modern understanding of Viking mythology, because he wrote the book on it, literally. I, I feel like he'd be pleased with that. <laughs> yes. Um, so it's different to the Poetic Edda. Um, he is actually using the Poetic Edda, we think. He quotes it here and there, along with many other lost poems as well. But his text isn't written in poetic form. It's prose, as the title implies. And it's basically a medieval guidebook on how to write a poem. It's not intended to be, you know, a children's introduction to gods and goddesses or anything like that. So the style of poetry the Vikings used is the skaldic style. And by the 13th century, of course, the Viking Age is long gone. This traditional style of Scandinavian poetry was dying out. And he was a bit worried people were going to forget how to do it. So he's preserving it. Exactly. And to make one of these work, these poems, they involve kennings. And kennings are like little word riddles, like metaphors. And a lot of them make references to very obscure things in Viking mythology. So this book is intended to introduce people to those facts. So then when they write poems or listen to a poem... Or should I say, compose a poem, they don't write too much, of course, in this time <laughs> period, they will understand what's actually being said. Right. Otherwise, they just make no sense. So, for example, they'd, be, they'd have cultural references, like one we, we could use is, you're the Juliet to my Romeo. If you don't know Shakespeare... It doesn't make any sense. Who on earth are those people? Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, so, there are loads and loads of examples of kennings. There's whole databases of them. We did a pub quiz, actually, once. There was a whole round on kennings. We did. Um, we, like, my favourite one is from our Eels episode, where um, he calls something eel heaven, yes. which, which is ice, because yes. the eels look up at the ice. Exactly. So, a lot of them you can actually work out based on kind of aspects of the physical world around us. So, yeah. others could be... The sky candle, for instance, it's the sun. It's like a candle in the sky. Then you get the weird ones, the ones that refer to characters from the myths and legends. So one of my favourites is uh, Marnie's shirt. Mm -hmm. Now, Marnie is the personification of the moon. Right, Which you wouldn't know, of course. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to work that out, would you? No. And so in this kenning, the moon is essentially wearing the sky... As a like shirt. a shirt. Right, so okay. I looked up at Marnie's shirt. I'm looking up at the sky. Fair enough. Um, but you wouldn't know why on earth. <laughs> the, no. the scald is telling you, would you, if you hadn't read one of these books. So the Eddas with Snorri's prose Edda in particular, it's a crash course in Viking myths. And it fills in a lot of the gaps that we have in the poetic Edda. Now with the sagas, they're quite different. The saga, that word, it means something like a story or a history, and it's actually seeped into modern English as well. I think Star Wars is now called the Skywalker Saga. Saga, it's yeah. A subtitle there. Um, <laughs> and they're written down at a very similar time to the Eddas. So all of our literature that we have about the Vikings... It's not written by the Vikings, we have to remember that. It's post-Viking Age. It's passed down orally through the generations. And then around the 13th, 14th centuries, people go, we should probably write this down, just in case we forget it. (laughs) And and as with the Eddas, we've lost a lot. The sagas often refer to other sagas, which just don't exist anymore. Yeah, Yeah. One of my favourites, in the saga of Hrolf Kraki, there's a character called Moose Frodi, who is half man half moose. 
And he rides off into the sunset, and the writer goes, and his story continues in the saga of Moose Frody. Oh, no. There is no saga of Moose Frody. It's been lost. Oh, I wish I could read that. That would be good. (laughs) We'll invent our our own version one day, maybe. (laughs) A creative writing episode, perhaps. Now, sagas can vary a lot. Some of them are huge. Uh, Nial's saga, for instance, is gigantic. Uh, quite novel-like. And others are tiny, just a few pages long. Um, they cover lots of different genres as well. So there are romantic ones about warrior poets. There are comedy ones as well, like uh, Rev the Sly, which we did for our first um, that, video well, saga. Exactly, yes. that Yorvik Viking thing, yeah. And some are much more like chronicles. They go through an entire family and tell you what each generation did. And they can go on a little bit, in my opinion, but yeah. they're very important sources nonetheless. It's like the saga of the Volsungs, right? Yes, mm-hmm. saga of the Volsungs is very much like that. Uh, each generation, we get an account of what they did, and on to the next generation after that. The really famous ones are the sagas of Icelanders, and these are very different to our Eddic sources about gods battling giants. The sagas of Icelanders are generally about farmers. Now, I feel like we've talked about these before. We've, we've, I think we've done a couple of episodes that come from the sagas of Icelanders, haven't we? Yeah, and um, they come across like tiny soap operas, to be honest. It's the just the little things that go on in their daily lives that spill over into horrific violence. <laughs> like like our Draugr episodes, those come from the sagas of Icelanders. Yeah, so those are some quite exceptional <laughs> examples of what they can be like. We've got ordinary people on their farms. Sometimes zombies appear. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, that's interesting because, like, the kind of differentiation in my mind would be that mythology is about the gods and goddesses and and the other mythical creatures. The sagas are about real people. But, I mean, obviously, if zombies are present, is there mythological elements in the sagas? Definitely, yeah. There's not exactly... I'm probably oversimplifying it, to be honest, going category one, category two, and there (laughs) we go. How easy is that? They definitely blur together quite a bit. Um... The Eddas are quite neat and tidy as two individual texts, but the sagas, we do get bits and pieces of mythology in there. The gods do occasionally make cameo appearances as well, particularly in what we call the legendary sagas. Right. Saga of the Volsungs is a great example. Fair. Odin pops up here and there in that one, <laughs> uh, wandering around all over the place. And we get supernatural creatures pop up as well. Like the Draugr. Yes, exactly. Um, it's also worth mentioning that because um, these aren't just all about, you know, pagan gods, we get um, saga material, which are very Christian in focus as well. So there, there's a whole kind of selection of sagas about saints, the miracles that they perform as well. I bet Odin doesn't appear in those ones. Not really, no. <laughs> unless there's a saint wagging their finger, going naughty, naughty, <laughs> shouldn't believe in him. I think in general, I'd say the sagas are set much more firmly in the real world. They're Fair. set in places like Iceland, Norway, York. The gods might come and visit, but the sagas don't take place in Jotunheim yeah. or Asgard. Uh, they're not, yeah, they're not the central characters of it. They make cameo appearances. Um, it's a bit like, I suppose, like, you know, an Avengers film or something. You might get a superhero pop up from a different film in it. Right. Just to kind of go, hello, it's a shared universe, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so it sounds like the, you know, storytelling was kind of all-encompassing. It talked about their religions. It talked about their everyday lives. So what is the cultural importance of storytelling then for the Vikings? 
It's very difficult to summarise briefly because <laughs> it will be monumentally important to the Vikings. So we've got to remember that back in that time period, they are overwhelmingly a non-literate culture. So there is some writing, of course. There's the runes. But the runes are for scratching tiny messages yeah. onto bits of wood, mainly. <laughs> like, this is Olaf's, something like that. Not whole epic sagas. No, yeah, if you try to carve Njalsar, that was just like a thousand pages <laughs> onto a tree. That would take you a very, very long time. So, unlike in modern times, you couldn't get a library book or something like that. You couldn't get a newspaper. Um, if you want to know what's going on, you need a story. Storytellers transmit knowledge through the generations and through the centuries, passing them down from person to person. This helps you learn history, helps you learn the world around you. Of course, whilst the Vikings are famous for being very mobile, a lot of them have got a farm to manage. They're not going to explore the world. Yeah. yeah, They're not all going off to Constantinople, you know, for their summer holidays or anything like that. But they might hear about it in the story. Exactly. Yeah. You can learn about geography through this. You could understand where you fit, not only in the world, but in the universe, yeah. even. You could, you could learn about Yggdrasil and the Nine Realms. You can learn about the supernatural, spiritual world, the afterlife. It's a way of transmitting just all the information you can imagine yeah. through storytelling. Along with that, these stories could also teach you very fundamental, essential parts of the culture of life in the Viking Age. So things like morality, honour, duty, love, all sorts of concepts like that. And also you could learn some very practical information, I think, through storytelling as well. So there's one poem I quite like called Sigurd Rivermal, which is a fun word to say. <laughs> uh, Sigurd River, who is known in other sources as Brunhilde, the Valkyrie, um, she gives a very, very long list of supernatural advice and when to use certain types of runes, which can be used for healing, for example. So it's just telling people how to use those runes for healing then? Yeah, exactly. So right. this might sound a little bit strange because it's obviously supernatural, of course, yeah. in this instance. But you could imagine a similar poem or a story being used to teach somebody herbal medicine. Right. The practical features of it. You could, with a rhyme, you could very easily remember, that one's poisonous, that one's not. There we go. <laughs> um, imagine like if your doctor was to, I don't know, do a poem how to cure, cure cancer or something <laughs> like that. So, I don't know. Storytelling can also pass on family history as well. As I said earlier, ones like the Volsungs pass on what your ancestors could have been up to. And storytelling could also be used to transmit news as well. As I said earlier, there's no newspapers. Yeah. There's no 24-hour rolling news. Uh, let's pretend, for instance, you know, we're here in Jorvik, a.k.a. York, and there's a new king down in London. Well, how do we know? We'll hear a great story about it, maybe. An epic battle took place <laughs> down there. Canute had the other king killed. We've got a glorious new king now. So they're like the news reporters of their day as well, I suppose. I think I'd be more inclined to watch the news if it was a story. Yeah, that'd be great, <laughs> wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, the Kennings might make it quite difficult to understand, Fair. I think, though. You'd be like, oh, what's Marnie's shirt again? <laughs> oh. Uh, get the editor out. I need to understand <laughs> this. And also, from our perspective as well, storytelling from the Viking Age has been very, very useful. A key example is the story of the Vikings going to North America. Yeah. Which we did an episode about a we little did. while ago. We did, Leif Erikson, yeah. yeah. I, I cannot believe it, was it? <laughs> 
Um, so up until the 1950s, that was the only evidence the Vikings went to North America, and people debated it quite a bit. Then they found Viking remains in Canada. Yeah. So it's a great way of preserving what was going on during that time period for their, for them and for future generations as well. And of course, I should mention entertainment as well. Um, today, we have so much media available to us. Along with books, we can watch a film, watch TV. There's so much fun stuff we can do. Imagine you're in Northern Europe. The sun sets very, very early in the day in the mm-hmm. winter. You've got nothing to do. Storytelling would be a godsend to yeah. stave off boredom and have a good laugh. Fair. So, I mean, you mentioned that obviously the gods, they're present in the, mytho- the mythology, of course, but that they're in the sagas too. Is this the best way to for us to understand the pagan religion of the Vikings? I mean, is that their understanding of the gods or did they have a different relationship with their mythology? That's a really difficult question to answer, (laughs) unfortunately. Now, um, these sources, like both of the Eddas, they give us lots and lots of nice trivia about the Viking gods. So we've got their names, their personalities, their many, many names in the case of Odin, I should say. (laughs) Um, We get myths like the story of creation, the story of Ragnarok. We learn about the shape of the cosmos with the nine realms and the great tree in the middle. And we get kind of hints about concepts to do with morality and behavioural ideals, I suppose, for the Viking Age. Yeah. But then a lot of it's just kind of entertainment, like Thor cross-dressing to get his hammer back. Yeah. The sources, both the Eddas and the Sagas, just don't really tell us how did pagan Vikings actually practice their faiths. Um, how did they practice their beliefs? What were their beliefs, actually? This is a problem we've kind of encountered in some of our Yule episodes. Yes. I mean... The, the magic pig, they touch and swear an oath. Exactly. There's is a it... horse they cook. <laughs> and we're told it happened. Yep. We don't know why it happened. Or what it means it, or anything like that. Is it a universal thing? Or is it just one weird family doing it in this one weird saga? Yeah. We don't really get a clear sense of the spiritual relationship between humans and gods in these stories. No, and it, it certainly doesn't say, like, the Bible, and then you go to church on Sundays yes, and you do this thing. Exactly. There's no kind of, like, Book of Common Prayer or anything like that. Yeah. So we don't have a list of Ten Commandments or anything like that. We get kind of glimpses of what their religion or beliefs could have been like from some of the written sources and also from archaeology as well. So we find all sorts of weird things buried in the ground sometimes. We might find, you know, the Thor's hammer amulets, which tell us Thor seems to be overwhelmingly the most popular god. We've also got strange things like bits of human skull with runic spells on them. What on earth is that all about? (laughs) That's not in the stories. Um, There's also the remains of a temple that once stood at Uppsala in Sweden. Um, rituals are mentioned in some of the written sources. There are Christian writers who comment upon this. Uh, the sacrifice of animals and humans, um, yeah. particularly linked with the god Odin, who in mythology sacrificed himself to himself, very yeah. vain. <laughs> and he also um, regularly demands sacrifice of specific people as well. There's a particularly gruesome one in the saga of Gautrek, where he manipulates a king into hanging himself. Future episode idea one day, maybe. (laughs) Halloween, perhaps. There's a writer called Adam of Bremen who mentions sacrifices happen in groups of nine. And this number occurs over and over again in many stories. So nine is clearly very important. But But why? why? (laughs) We're not really told. 
We also find in archaeology boat burials, for yeah. instance. So boats seem to be important spiritually, religiously. The most famous one, I suppose, is the Osterberg ship yeah. in Norway. Go see that if you're in Oslo anytime soon. Lovely big ship. There are also much smaller ones as well. There's the Scar Boat Burial in Scotland, which is just a, a little boat with some people buried in it. And Ibn Fadlan, the, the Arab traveller, he described a funeral in which a man is burned inside a ship. And we do see parallels in the mythology stories. The god Balder dies and is cremated inside one of these huge Viking ships. But on the other hand, we have lots and lots of other Viking burials. Yeah, they're not in a ship at all. They yeah. have nothing to do with ships, yeah. So is this a universal thing? Is this a quirky thing that some extreme hardcore <laughs> Viking pagans do? So there don't seem to be hard and fast rules when it comes to spirituality, belief and religion in the Viking Age. Um, along with those kind of bigger things like gods and goddesses, there's also magic as well. And magic pops up a lot in the sagas. Um, We did some episodes, I believe, Thorbjörg the Seeress popped up recently in one. Hers is a very interesting ceremony. We get a description of her outfit, which includes cat skin. Yeah. So, you know, very fetch. (laughs) Uh, Reminds us of the goddess Freya, who's linked with magic and cats. Yep. For some some, some reason why, whatever. (laughs) She eats a cooked heart of every species of animal in the area. I'm sure that's important for a reason. Something to do with sacrifice, maybe. She climbs onto a scaffold up high and summons spirits. And this happens in actually quite a few sources. They climb up high to do their magic. Then women gather in a circle and sing magical songs. There are no lyrics to the songs, unfortunately, though. But women seem to be very linked with magic and the supernatural. We talk about that quite a lot in our um, our Viking women in the Viking Age series. Yes, uh, you might remember I mentioned there were um, grave goods of CRSs as well, narcotic yeah. drugs, yeah. things that look like magic wands as well. But we don't really know how this mixes with all those stories in the Eddas. Yeah, this stuff about Thor cross-dressing yeah. and Odin giving us some trivia. Yeah, how does this all mesh together? And also sagas mention other types of spirits as well. Things like the fulgia, which seem to be animal spirit guardians. There's also female spirits called Deesir, but they're not described to us. And they don't appear in the Eddas. So is there a hierarchy of yeah. magical creatures that we just don't understand here? Uh, what, what is the wider context that we're missing? So overall, we just don't really have any sources that tell us how do you practice the religion, the the beliefs of the Viking Age? How, when, and where do you pray? When and what do you sacrifice? And we've got to remember as well, the Viking Age was very, very, very long. Yeah. Um, we traditionally, in England, say 793 with the Raid of Lindisfarne to 1066, the Battle of Stamford Bridge. So very long time period. And it's a very wide area as well. Yeah. We've got Scandinavia, then we've got Viking colonies in Iceland, Greenland, Britain, Ireland, Normandy, Russia, Ukraine. And they travel as traders much further afield as well. So they're going to have all sorts of variations across different time and different place in the way they would practice their beliefs. I suppose it's a bit like if you say you're Christian, well, are you Greek Orthodox or are you Church of England? Exactly, yeah. Um... We can rediscover some of this through archaeology, but there's always going to be huge gaps. We've lost this information, ultimately. Fair. I mean, so you gave us an example of, what was it, Moose 
Fro- Moose Frode, yeah. Mo- Moose Frode. Yeah. Um, are there mytho- mythological examples like that? Yeah, there's there's quite a few. But I think my favourite is from the Prose Edda, we get a mention of a poem called Heimdallagelder. And literally translated, the magic spells of the god Heimdall. Ooh. So that sounds really interesting, it doesn't does, it? It does, yeah. Two lines are preserved of the poem <laughs> in the Prose Edda. Amazing. And in English, these lines are, I am the sum of nine mothers. I am the sum of nine sisters. Right. So what does that mean? I mean... <laughs> so Heimdall has nine mothers. Are the mothers all sisters? Apparently so, okay. yeah. Uh, very little contraception in this time period, of course. How does one have nine mothers? So there's all sorts of ideas. Maybe he has lived nine lives yeah. and he's been reincarnated. Okay. That work. Maybe yep. reincarnation's a thing. Yep. Um, maybe we've got a nine-month pregnancy and he's sort of transferred ah, from between womb to womb, them. Yeah. That could work. The nines work together very nicely there, that magic number. Yeah. Maybe he's born in nine pieces. Ah, so like someone gives birth to an arm, someone else gives birth to a knee or something, yeah. and he's assembled. And you get an Allen key, like with your <laughs> IKEA furniture, you put Heimdall together. Yep. But all of that's just speculation. There is no definitive answer. We have no idea what your everyday Viking would have believed about Heimdall and his nine sister mums. What is this relationship? How was he born? What what are you telling us in this poem? Yeah, no. We just lost that information, unfortunately, and we tend not to find manuscripts just lying around that haven't been read for a thousand years, unfortunately. I mean, so you just mentioned that the Viking Age was very long. It expanded a lot of different areas. So am I right in thinking that their stories weren't static, that they, they the myths and the sagas changed depending on when and where they were told? So yeah, it seems quite likely there would be changes over time and in different parts of the Viking world. As I said earlier, very, very long time period multiple generations of Vikings throughout that period across a huge area of the world. As they're travelling, they're meeting other cultures as well, absorbing ideas from their beliefs too. And the texts that I've mentioned so far, the Eddas and the Sagas, they are overwhelmingly written in Iceland and very, very late as well. So they probably preserve very late ideas from the myths and legends, from a very specific part of the Viking world, that little corner up there in the North Atlantic. So can can we be certain that, for example, a a Viking Age person living in 8th century Sweden, would they believe these same stories that someone in, let's say, 11th century Iceland would have had? Or would they have gone, I don't recognise these at all. (laughs) Who, Who are these characters you're referring to? Now, there are some other bits of literature which give us clues about these variations. So in the prose edda, you have the story of the death of Balder. Right. Now, I won't go into the whole story, but the god Balder is one of Odin's sons. He's accidentally slain by his brother Hod, who is a blind god that's tricked into throwing a spear or an arrow of mistletoe at him. Mistletoe is the only thing that kills him. It's Balder's kryptonite, basically. Okay. But then there's another story written down by a writer called Saxo Grammaticus, which is a catchy name. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in 13th century Denmark, and he has this same story in there. Oh, right, okay. In this version, Balder and Hod are rivals fighting over a woman named Nana. So Nana is actually Balder's wife in the other version of the story, version one, perhaps right. the Iceland version. 
And again, Hod ends up killing Balder. And the plot is largely the same, but the relationships are just completely different between all these characters. Right. And in the first version, Loki's the one who manipulates everybody, going, oh, hey, Hod, take this spear that's definitely not mistletoe and throw <laughs> it over there. Whereas in this version, it's just it's just your plain old love triangle. Loki plays no role Nothing whatsoever. Which is interesting, because Loki's killing of Balder ultimately results in his imprisonment. He's not keen on the gods after that, and he then takes a huge role in Ragnarok. In Ragnarok, yeah. So how does this connect with Ragnarok? Does it just not connect with Ragnarok in this version of the story? So this perhaps hints at these kind of subtle variations in mythological traditions from different times and different places. I suppose if these stories are mainly relying on people's oral traditions, of course things are going to change a little bit. It's, it's you know, like the game of telephone when you're kids. Yes, you'll misremember all sorts of bits. They'll yeah. go, oh, Nana was his uh, love interest or wife? <laughs> I've forgotten. Was Loki in this one? Oh, was that the other story? It's also worth pointing out as well that there's a bit of a mismatch as well between some of the the written sources and the physical bits of evidence that we have. We've talked a little bit about this before, haven't we? Yeah. So if you read the Eddas, Odin is the most prominent god by far. The Every other story. Yeah. yeah. He's the focus of all these poems and he pops up in the saga literature as well as a supporting kind of secondary character. Yeah. In the archaeological record, though, we find the Thor's hammer amulet everywhere. Yeah. And depictions of Thor pop up on picture stones quite commonly as well. Yeah. If you look at the names of Vikings... Everyone is named after Thor. Everyone. It's so infuriating. <laughs> this is, I mean, this is an issue we have with our stories all the time. It's like, oh, no, Thora, Thor, Thorbjorg, Thorstein? Can't remember. Like, Even the women have got Thor yeah. in their name. <laughs> so what does this mean? Is Odin the bigwig? Or is Thor? If I if I lived in Jorvik in the ninth century, who's my god I'm focusing my religious devotion towards? It does seem a bit contradictory, doesn't it? Um, we can also pick apart some of the, the poems and myths as well to find some of the changes that occur over time. So let's put the boys aside for a second. We've got Frigg and Freya, yep. two of the goddesses. So very firmly, two separate characters, two separate goddesses in our sources. They can be in the same room talking to each other. Yeah. But this might not have always been the case. Frigg is the wife of Odin. Mm -hmm. And Odin literally means the mad. Now, Freya is married to somebody called Odd or Ode. And this means mad. Freya, we're told in the prose editor that she cries because Odd or Ode travels a lot. Odin also travels a lot as well. And we've got the same name. Well, yeah. <laughs> and um, interestingly, Freya, this actually means like a noble lady. It's like oh, Sir so like, a, or like a title. Yeah, it's a bit like Frau in German. Right. And so is Freya a title for Frigg, maybe? So, yeah. Is she Lady Frigg, Freya Frigg? But then maybe... As time's moved on, these two words have become separate in people's imaginations, ultimately. So these they've two become names, two separate characters. They've kind of crystallised into two other beings, yeah. So there are these clues that there are kind of layers of evolution in the mythology yeah. that aren't really explicitly told to us in the source material that we now have. There's also quite a few gods. I say quite a few, there are loads of gods, <laughs> aren't there? But quite a few which seems to be very, very important at certain points in the Viking Age, 
but they just barely appear in the source material. I mean, we definitely talked about this in our uh, episode with the Silly History Boys. What was yes. it? Beauty by Baldur. And yes. I mean, it, it's just there's so many gods and goddesses who are just a single line of dialogue and then never mentioned again. But like, um, oh, what was the one? She had the the, the apples that kept the gods... Uh, Idun. Young yes. or something. I mean, she seems like she'd be really important. Yeah. And it's um, just not it. She's just there in the background at all the cool parties. <laughs> and and that, that's that, yeah. She's got her apples to deal with. She's too busy. Uh, another good example, which I quite like, is the god Ullur. Now, most people won't have heard of Ullur. He doesn't no. pop up in Marvel, for instance. He's very much one of the minor gods in the stories that we have. He's the son of Sif and the stepson of Thor. Mm-hmm. So you'd think he'd be there more often than he is. Um, he's also linked with shields, hunting, and skiing. So a very outdoorsy god. Nice. He's barely mentioned in the sources. But in Scandinavia, if you look at place name evidence, there are loads and loads and loads of places named after Ulla. So he must have been very, very important back in the Viking Age. Well, at least regionally, at least in that area, is yeah. kind of significant. So that, yeah. there could be some, yeah, lo- local importance there potentially. But perhaps by the time we got to, you know, medieval Iceland, people were like, oh, he's not that important around here in this <laughs> time. So they didn't write him down. He's just there in the background at the parties. <laughs> and that's that. It is possible, I suppose. Maybe he's got more than one name. Hmm? And Ulla is there. Maybe Ulla is like Heimdall or something like that. <laughs> you never know. But we, we just don't have a cohesive account of Viking mythology. We're like looking through a keyhole at the room going, what's in there? I see a guy with one eye. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I mean, we we kind of talked about the mythology and how that relates to the greater Viking world, but um, we're leaving out a a really big part of the Viking Age, which is the introduction of Christianity. That was a huge element of Viking culture, especially by the time they got to Jorvik. um, they, They adopted Christianity readily. Now... What did that do to the myths and sagas? Did they still tell them the mythology? Was it still important to them? So it's an interesting question because, as I said earlier, all of the sources that we've got written down, they're post-Viking Age, they're post-Christianization. They're written down by medieval Christians. And Christianity has definitely had an impact upon the literature that we have about the mythology. But probably not in the way you'd expect. Okay. Um, I think that Christianity influenced the style in which the sagas are written. For starters, they're in the Latin alphabet rather than runes. <laughs> um, they will praise the virtues of Christian characters. Um, sagas will often end with a main character going on a random pilgrimage to Rome, which is quite nice. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, the saga of Rev the Sly I mentioned earlier, that comedy. Yeah. Religion does not come up at all until the final page, where he goes to Rome and he dies a good Christian. And you're like, oh, um, cool, <laughs> fine, that was nice. <laughs> That um that parallels actually quite a lot with him. Um, do you remember our uh what was he called? Somebody in the polar bear. Um the tale of Alden from the Western Fjords. Yes. Yes. So he got he he was giving one of the kings of Sweden or Norway or something a polar bear as a Christmas boil, as a Yule present. And then he just went to Rome or Constantinople or something and, and was mm-hmm. just stranded there all sad for a while. I think he got really sick. Yeah. That's, I mean, <laughs> it's interesting to think that might not have been an original element of the story. Yeah. We also get um, 
female characters as well, who at the end of the story become the holiest nun that Iceland has ever seen. Oh, How wonderful. Good for them. The stories about the Vikings going to America ends with, and they started a glorious line of bishops. <laughs> the end. Which isn't quite what you're expecting no. from that story. Um, the sagas of Icelanders in particular, uh, a lot of those take place around the year 1000, yeah. which is a nice memorable date yeah. for when the Vikings in Iceland become Christian. And main characters, for example, one of the big ones, Laxdala Saga, has a guy called Kjartan in it. They will leave Iceland as a pagan, go somewhere like Norway, meet a wise Christian king, and see the error of their ways and come home a good, devout Catholic. And characters might think very long, very hard, ooh, should I accept this new religion? And they always do. Yeah. Unless they're a baddie. Baddies don't become Christians, of course. (laughs) But the the conversion to Christianity is referred to in multiple sagas as the best thing that ever happened in Iceland. Which sounds important. (laughs) So you you (laughs) Um, can tell it was written through a Christian lens, can't you? Yeah. So we do sometimes see conflicts between the pagan customs and Christianity. Um, for example, Eric the Red Saga, there's a plague of zombies in that one. Um, and that happens because they were not buried with correct Christian burial rites. So once they do it properly, the zombies all go away. Sure. Um, also we have sagas where Viking saints appear as well. That's really kind of contradictory to what most people imagine the Vikings as, you know, being. Hmm. Um, we've got, for example, St. Magnus, who I think is the patron saint of Orkney. Right. Uh, he pops up in the saga of the Earls of Orkney, and he's a really, really good Christian. He refuses to fight in raids and battles. He prays and just sings hymns instead. And when he dies, he miraculously blinds a bishop from beyond the grave. <laughs> That's a bit vicious. I think because he didn't believe he was a saint or something like that, that the story escapes me right now. But later he restores his sight, of course. So we have saintly stories there in the sagas. But going back to the mythology in particular, I think a lot of modern readers are sometimes a bit anxious that, hmm, Christian wrote this. Can I trust it? Did Snorri change this story to make it anti-pagan or something? As if there's some kind of church agenda, perhaps, or something right. like that. But we don't really see any evidence of this, to be honest. Why would someone want to do that? Yeah. Why would you want to change some ancestral story about some god that's going to sit in a library well, or something yeah, like exactly. that? Well, yeah, exactly. Um, if you read the Eddas, they don't tell you how to be a pagan. Well, no. They don't tell you how to pray to Thor or how to ritually sacrifice your children to Odin or something like that. They're just kind of like soap opera, to be honest. Like, lol, this one time Thor (laughs) lost his hammer and he puts on a dress like a lady and has to get it back. I mean, if you think about it, we will, you know, let, let our children watch something like Disney's Hercules. Yeah. And they're not going to start going to Mount Olympus and praying, (laughs) are they? It's it's just popular entertainment, isn't it? So I don't think medieval Christians were concerned they might accidentally convert people to paganism by acknowledging the existence of these stories. They were able to rationalise, well, my ancestors believed in this, and I don't. Cool stories, though. (laughs) And also, there's, there's linguistic evidence as well that these are pre-Christian stories. Um, a lot of them are preserved in poetic form. And of course, poems have rhymes, yeah. they've got alliterations. 
And it would the, be evident if they changed. Yeah, yeah, you'd find a strange 13th century sentence like shoved into this 9th <laughs> century poem. We, we just don't see that. Um, it's very difficult to alter one of these old poems. So, if anything, I would say that a Christian writer like Snorri Sturluson, he's not changing the mythology because he's a naughty Christian, going, ooh, I'm going to change this this old story. He, as a Christian, probably has a very kind of systemic view of the world. This is the way the world is. This is the way that religion is. There are rules. There's scripture. Paganism doesn't have that. Yeah. And he's probably got all these lost poems in front of him going, how do I fit these together? (laughs) This doesn't work. They contradict each other. So he's tried to make it very orthodox. Yeah. He's gone, ah, this this is the hierarchy of the gods. He does that, she does this, he does that. Here's the story of the world from creation to end. It probably wasn't like that. It's probably much more random, much more fluid and flexible. Um, If you think about Christianity, you you kind of have to do what the Bible says, uh, within reason. (laughs) (laughs) You can't go around saying, oh, yeah, I believe bits of it. Yeah, like Jesus, maybe he's like God's uncle or something. (laughs) If you do that, you're you're not a Catholic, are you? That's very much against the rules. So he's ironed out paganism very neatly to for try us. and make it similar. Yeah, um, I wouldn't say it's invalid what he's got there. Mm-hmm. He's 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 picked and chosen. I think what he <laughs> thinks works best in his medieval Christian worldview. Yeah, I think the main thing that does stand out, I have to say, with Snorri is the very very start of the prose edda. Um, he says, "Okay, so Viking gods in the beginning." God created the heavens and the earth. And you're like, wait, what? What's going on here? <laughs> then he introduces you to the Viking gods. And it's really, really weird. Because the Viking gods, they don't come from, you know, a, a world in the branches of a universal ash tree. They come from the city of Troy. Now, like, like from the Iliad. Yes, exactly. That Troy, yes. So, I mean, I'm not like a Greek academic or anything. Mm-hmm. But like, I feel like I'd remember if it was like Hector and Achilles and Odin. You know? Yeah. So they don't sound particularly Greek, do they? No. Um, Odinopolis or something <laughs> like that. Um, so the city of Troy is in what is now Turkey. Yep. Uh, Turkey is on the continent of Asia. Yep. Now that family of gods is the Asir. Right. A-E-S-I-R. It's basically the word Asia. That's his kind of is little it? link there. Is it basically if, the word Asia? If you Asia? say it in a 13th century Icelandic <laughs> accent. Um, so he's telling us that... Odin and Thor, well, they're from the city of Troy. And, of course, the ancient world is so advanced, particularly the Greek world. They go north to Scandinavia. And imagine if some, you know, some Trojans, some Greeks came up to, you know, Iron Age Scandinavia. These people must be gods. They're so advanced. <laughs> right, okay. That's kind of what he's telling us there. That Oh, well, we all know that Odin's not a god. <laughs> he's just some ancestral human who was great. Then, like, chapter two. Anyway, the god Odin made the world. And you're like, wait, what? That was a bit of a juxtaposition we just had there. Um, From that point onwards, he's very faithful (laughs) to the original sources. So I think he's writing this opening bit to let his Christian audience know, I'm not sympathising with these beliefs. Um, Don't worry, they're not actually gods. It's it's a very weird opening, yeah. I love it. 
So I think all of this is really important to keep in mind. And the, you know, eagle-eyed, eagle-eared, I guess, listeners will um, notice that we brought up one particular story a couple of times. The Volsons, was it that one? Or was it the- Moose Boy? <laughs> we'll get to Moose Boy eventually, I think. But yeah, we, we did. We mentioned the Volsungs. The Volsungs, very, very important uh, saga. You've got a bit of mythology in there with mm-hmm. the god Odin making his little cameo appearances, being a cheeky scamp. We have, like... You know, tap danced around the Volsungs for quite a while. I mean, we we told the Volsung fan fiction with uh, the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok. I mean, I think it's time that we tell the saga of the Volsungs. I shall fetch my manuscripts. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, as you alluded to a little bit ago, um, I mean, it's a long one, so I think it might be more than one episode. Volsunga Summer. Volsunga Summer. Yes. I love it. So everyone needs to make sure that they tune in for that. Um, I think it'll be a good one. Yeah. Suck with the Volsungs, bring it on. <laughs> if you liked this episode and want to learn more about the Vikings, then come visit Jorvik Viking Centre, where you can enjoy the sights, sounds, and smells of the Viking Age. You can book your tickets at jorvikvikingcentre.co.uk. Don't forget to rate and review that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast on your podcast app. And if you enjoyed the show, share us with a friend. It's the best way to help support your favourite history podcast. To contact us for more information or ideas for future episodes, you can email us on podcast at yorkat.co.uk. Thanks for listening to that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all other major podcast platforms. That Jorvik Viking Thing podcast is a production of the Jorvik Group and York Archaeology, hosted by Miranda Schmiederer and Lucas Norton. Researched by Lucas Norton, produced by Miranda Schmiederer, Lucas Norton, and Gareth Henry. Sound designed and edited by Miranda Schmiederer. <laughs>